What a strange, murky, and muddy area free speech land has become nowadays. Rife with disingenuous people who are in it just to confuse shit so they can get some airtime for their preferred brand of vile views. It's become a topic exploited and misrepresented to an extent where we don't even get to any real, meaty, important conversations about actual free speech. And there's plenty of them to be had. I quite enjoy and appreciate those. But, from the internet landscape, you'd gather that the largest issues involve lamenting how you're no longer able to use the N-word in polite society without facing consequences, or not being able to invite neo-Nazis to campus unopposed, not being able to make jokes about murder in a professional environment, about blackface being frowned upon, all these stupid things that have formed the core of the so-called free speech warriors' conversations. While we see them threaten lawsuits at the drop of a hat for someone tweeting something about them that they happen to disagree with, or while they call for entire fields of study to be defunded because they've been corrupted by cultural Marxism or something. In this slimy, Trumpy, confused on free speech environment, you often hear the phrase, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So, join me for the first half of a fascinating panel today, where we chat about whether that's true or not, and is it really as simple as a yes or no answer? Is it applicable across the board to all sorts of political climates, even as authoritarian, bigoted views gain ground? I mean, should anti-Amity views be given legitimacy in a Pakistani university, for example, in a climate where anti-Amity sentiment is already so high, endorsed by the state even? I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but is that really a place where it's responsible to simply hear all sides? I mean, we really try to delve into the different contexts and situations that may affect whether simple exposure works as a natural deterrent for abhorrent views or whether it can be a promotional tool for those views as well. And just as I record this, I keep in mind all the far-right attacks in the U.S. over the past couple of weeks and the president's continued hateful rhetoric which seems to have emboldened such acts. I'm also painfully aware that Bannon filled thousands of seats for a prominent debate with David Frum in my own city of Toronto. And guess what? The debate backfired massively. They tallied the results all wrong and falsely showed that by the end of the debate, 43% of the people had shifted to being open to Bannon's views as opposed to the initial 28%. This was totally incorrect and some sort of technical glitch, we're told, but you know how fake news spreads way faster than corrections, right? The damage and legitimizing had already been done. Bannon got the propaganda he wanted. Mainstream headlines saying things like, Steve Bannon's showmanship wins him plenty of converts in monk debate. And even Fromm admits in a sad, tail-between-his-legs sort of take from the Atlantic that he had, indeed, still been party to spreading discouragement rather than, as he believed, sparking faith and hope. There's just so much confusion and absolutism around this topic that it's incredibly frustrating. Free speech doesn't mean that every rando that invites you to debate a topic of their choice is owed your time or attention or a particular platform. And I personally think that a private company is well within their rights to boot you off their website for violating their terms or code of conduct. 
Whatever happens to these Rubenesque advocates of the marketplace of ideas, whenever the marketplace is choosing to reject certain ideas, they just can't accept it. And you know, I actually used to really believe, out of fear and concern for handing them even more power, the whole don't deplatform these fucks because you'll only feed into their popularity narrative. For those who followed my work, you probably heard a few of my free speech panels, one of them on Milo being removed from Twitter. My positions have shifted along the way and evolved and become a lot more nuanced, uh, I'd like to think. But, you know, I was never the kind of free speecher that thinks people shouldn't have consequences for their speech. I always recognized that protesting someone's speech was also an exercising of other speech. But I just worried that maybe we were giving Milo another tool to claim victimhood with and gain more sympathies. I'm so happy to report that I was wrong, and it seems like he's desperately trying to remain relevant and failing. So, yeah. Okay, now a couple of things before we move on to the actual episode. I just wanted to remind listeners that this show is funded entirely by you. It's simply not possible to keep it going without new audience support via Patreon or PayPal. And that's becoming more important now than ever. You'll hear why in just a second. So if you enjoy the conversations and have been listening free of charge, please consider donating to help this show thrive and survive. And if you really can't do that, please consider sharing the content and leaving an iTunes review. These episodes are time-consuming to edit, schedule, organize, research, so any help would be truly appreciated. Now, I also wanted to make a quick announcement as well. I am almost eight months pregnant at this time. You know, I thought I'd take Peterson's advice and become a trad wife and make babies. I kid, I kid. Even feminist cucks like me want babies sometimes. (laughs) Okay, jokes aside now. I'm about to have my hands really full, literally. I'm going to record, hopefully, some content in advance so it carries me into two to three months after the baby comes. After that, I really don't know what my life will be like, what my schedule will be like, and I'll certainly have to reevaluate whether this whole podcast project is worth continuing. I absolutely love doing it for you guys, but there are times where it has been so emotionally exhausting and draining and the hate and death and rape threats and horrid emails really, really get to me at times. And without much growth or budget, I really wonder if it's worth the trouble to keep this tiny operation going. So I'm not making any decisions right now, but how things go in the next few months will be crucial. If you ever, ever considered supporting the show, now would be the time. Of course, I thank all the patrons who have made it possible this far. I couldn't have done it without you guys. You're awesome. And now that that's out of the way, let's get on to part one of the episode. Keep an eye out for part two next week. Make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, (laughs) ever controversial. Or yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. 
keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to panel 16. Is sunlight really the best disinfectant? Today I've got Guardian columnist Nasreen Malik joining me along with YouTuber Destiny. Hey guys, thanks so much for coming on. Hi. Hey, what's up? Hey, this, I I mean, as you guys know, this has been quite a long and painful topic to find guests for and schedule and all that, because it's so hard to find people that you can actually have a productive conversation with on this topic and aren't just like some Dave Rubin types of inconsistent free speech warriors. So truly, thanks a lot for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nasreen, you've written some uh, interesting articles on this topic. You know, you just wrote one recently about how indulging Steve Bannon is just a form of liberal narcissism. And you say white supremacy and fascist flirtations are not ideas that need to be exposed. We just need to fight them. So I was hoping you could speak to that a bit. Well, I I found that... um that that those who are in favor of Steve Bannon being hosted and interviewed ad nauseum tended kind of very rarely to be those on the right um, and mostly were those in the center or left of center who felt that it was some sort of exercise of free speech issue rather than one of purpose or one of merit. So it wasn't I felt like people didn't want to speak to Steve Bannon because they felt like they would learn anything new or that he was presenting anything valuable to the discourse. I think it was, it felt like it was only something people were interested in because it somehow proved that liberals were robust and could have conversations with people who didn't agree with them, which I just thought felt quite indulgent and quite detached from the risks of normalization mm-hmm. um and it, it it just struck me as more of a kind of liberal university debating team fantasy than it was um a genuine pursuit of journalistic virtue integrity value or even really challenge because once, once you did look at these interviews that he had, whether it was at The Economist, the FT, in the UK, he was hosted a couple of times as well on Good Morning TV and then radio, it was it was rarely a challenge that he was faced with. It was just kind of a, a, a soft poking here and there. And so it didn't really feel like he was even being challenged. Um, and so it just felt to me like it was just some sort of bracing exercise mm-hmm. uh, for liberals rather than something they genuinely believed in. I mean, I do see that a lot of the people that are very pro hearing almost anyone, you know, Tommy Robinson, anyone, anywhere, uh, Richard Spencer, Bannon, um, firstly, they don't have the same views when it comes to Islamists being heard, and they don't advocate for their freedom of speech in the same passionate manner. And it does seem to be, to me, removed from reality, like especially of the consequences that others may face of having these people being given like large, prominent, prestigious platforms. What do you think, Destiny? Um, yeah, unfortunately, I think I have to agree with with almost everything that's been said so far. I'm a big, um, or at least I was, a, a big proponent of the idea of free speech, but it, it seems like more often than not, 
people that are advocating for it the most are not really concerned so much with the idea of free speech, but more that it's a tool to platform, I guess, the most aggressive or offensive ideas they can, oftentimes in an area where they're absolutely being unchallenged. And it seems to be not a positive thing when practiced the way it so often seems to be today. You, you know, you mentioned Dave Rubin earlier, but that would be a really good example. The idea of, you know, I'm, I'm all for free speech and, I, you know, I am too, but free speech doesn't mean you give somebody who might be a literal Nazi, you know, carte blanche to come onto your platform and, and preach for an hour and a half without any real challenge to anything they've said. Right. While well, you nod along, like it's, pretty dangerous to, to have that happen yeah so i watched bannon on the economist event that he was on and it just seemed like you know he was really mopping the floor with his opponent and it just it wasn't really a good thing you know you give someone like him who's well versed he's got all these little tricks to sanitize what he's actually saying and then you give him a soft interview where, like, she said something like, you know, and this is why people think you're a racist, Mr. Bannon. You may not be. She, she made sure to add that. You may not be, but you refuse to condemn people like, you know, Orban or Salvini, the deputy PM uh, in Italy, who's like, who's called for cleansing of migrants from entire parts of the country. She said that he refuses to condemn them. So that's why... People think he's racist. And it. I just felt like that was such a soft thing to say to Bannon. Yeah, I haven't seen the interview myself, but I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me oftentimes when these people get hosted. It, it, um, like what was said earlier, it seems more like an exercise in, in showing people how nice and kind you are than an actual like demonstration of this is how to platform somebody with extremist views and then responsibly tackle that. Right. Can I, like, can I ask for a clarification, real quick? When we say liberal here, do we mean like, like, a, like a liberal, like liberalism, or are we? Do we just mean somebody that like leans left socially or politically? Or? Yeah, good question. What, 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 what do you mean, Nasreen? Well, I think it's um, a, a liberal has become a third classification, right? It's no because before, a liberal was someone who leaned sort of left of center. Um, and there was a time actually in the UK where liberal and left wing were interchangeable. Um, mm -hmm. But now the way I use it is liberal in the sense that it's sort of a it's sort of non-partisan, neither left nor right, avowedly. So they you know make it clear. Like the Economist is a very good example um, uh, of this sort of neutral, liberal, centrist, non-partisan, um, subscribes to enlightenment values, rationality, individualism, etc. But it's very specifically non-partisan in their politics. And I think that's such a really good question that you ask um, as to how we define liberal because it, it has become, it has evolved very quickly in the past, I would say even just two years in yeah. the way that it's used um, to denote basically, you know, it's, it's used to denote somebody who is not on the right, um, but definitely doesn't like the left. Except um, these people usually are on the right <laughs> and they just can't admit it to themselves. Yeah, I guess. I, I, I don't know. I think it says something. I, I think, to be fair, what has happened is that there are many people now that 
have either genuinely or cosmetically taken on board progressive values, right? So I think you can realistically be someone who is, you know, things that are not classically right wing in the US at least, right? So you can be someone who believes in gay marriage, who believes in sexual freedom and reproduction rights for women, you know, who believes in freedom of movement, all these things that before you would not associate with the right. Um, but who fundamentally does side with a white patriarchal establishment, who thinks that political correctness is bad, who subscribes to like basically myths about identity politics, all that kind of stuff. So I think that there is a new, which is I think, you know, a good thing, potentially. I think there is a new demographic or a new political leaning, which is people who have agreed in principle to a lot of the things that on the right are not givens, right? Um, but who don't necessarily subscribe to principles that are of the left, which are, you know, fiscal distribution, you know, equal distribution fiscally. They don't believe, for example, in representation based on identity and all those things. So I think that there has been, in the culture war, there has sprung up a new faction that is neither right nor left and and that's why i think they're so hard to pin down because people on the left accuse them of being right wing or even alt-right and they legitimately can say we're not mm -hmm. um and people on the on the on the right you know can't dismiss them as antifa you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. So they, it's a long answer to, to your question, um, Destiny. Gotcha. I'm just making sure for purposes of this conversation, I've got it straight. I, I'm familiar with the definition you're using. I've got a lot of, um, for better or for worse, I've got a lot of lefty fans now, like left, left, like socialists and, and yeah. commies that get upset when people use liberal to refer to just people that are left-leaning mm -hmm. rather than people yeah. that are not. Yeah, so I, yeah, I'm just making sure we're on the same page for that. And then yeah. in the United States, we use liberal to just mean Democrat sometimes. It has nothing to do with the idea of liberalism or liberal whatever it's just what we call democrats so there's a lot of yeah. different uh, definitions for the same word it seems right and, and yeah. i think what muddies the water uh especially in sort of the the skeptosphere that uh, i know destiny and i are kind of familiar with i know nasreen you're familiar with uh, the idw and majid nawaz and that kind of thing as well but I don't know how closely you follow it. So for me, I think that group has muddied the definition and confused things on the word liberal because they use, you know, classical liberal to indicate that they're not right-wingers while they're championing the right on almost everything. So mm, almost sounds like virtue signaling. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there's YouTubers like Sargon like that. You know, he joined what you, Kip, to own the libs or something. Mm. And so it just, it becomes a mess. You know, I, I refer to myself as a liberal, but I'm pretty firmly on the left. I'm not a communist or a socialist, but, you know, I'm what North America would refer to as a liberal uh, and progressive. Mm. So, yeah, it's just a whole mess with the term liberal. Like now people on the left use it as an insult, too. And sometimes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. It's like a sentence you know centrist centrist liberal in the uk is used on the left as an insult um yeah. 
because you know what did they say the left looks for the, the right looks for converts and the left looks for traitors mm-hmm. um and the left in the uk right now you know does look for traitors and the centrist liberals are the big traitors of the left mm-hmm. in the uk anyway we're, we're digressing but yes. it's like it's, yeah. a whole, it's a whole other episode i think right right exactly yeah. exactly something um something that i think is is really important and i think it's to the fundamental part of this matter and it's something that extremely frustrates me and which caused my position to change so much on all of these issues is um it, it feels like um, I'm trying to think of the poli- the most polite way to inform this, or, or the, to say this. It, it feels like um, it becomes a matter of how I don't want to say intelligent, but how informed you are on certain issues that frustrates me w- when it comes to the positions people take. So, for example, you know, we speak about w- what somebody would call themselves as being a liberal. They might say that they are pro gay marriage, pro minority rights, pro sexual freedom, etc. They might say all of these things, and they might even actually believe these things internally. But the problem is those core values get filtered through so much uninformed, unintelligent gray matter in the front of their brain that by the time you get to the end, the policy positions that they end up taking become indistinguishable from Mm -hmm. people that flirt with fascism. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you might get somebody that says, um, I am pro-minority rights, and I and they genuinely might believe that. I, so in the United States, I'll use um, African-Americans or black people as an example, right? They might say, like, I, I really do not hate African-Americans. I'm not racist at all. And it's like, okay, cool. However, I believe in conservative economic ideals, and I think that welfare is evil, and I don't think we should have to provide funding for their schools, and I do think that, you know, these things are just – and it's like at the end of the day, when you look at the policy positions they take, it's like, okay, well, like you're literally indistinguishable from somebody that is racist. Like I don't – like it doesn't seem very productive that your core values don't line up at all with the policy positions that you advocate for because you just seem woefully uninformed of your policy positions. Mm. And also, I mean, the right and left are continuously evolving, right? So what was classically right wing a couple of decades ago may not be the same now. So if you're like a gay conservative in North America, I mean, it's possible for you to be right wing and not against gay marriage, right? Yeah, for sure. Or or you or you even find a way to be for it and against it. You live in this weird dichotomy with this weird dissonance where you get your figures like, um, for instance, you might say, like, I like gay people. And then and now you have proof of that. You say, well, look, I like Milo Yiannopoulos. He's gay. And now he's my gay figure. And it's like, OK, cool. Well, what does my Milo say about other gay people? Well, they're lazy and he would never hire one. Right. And, and like all of them are should engage in pedophilia relationships like Jesus. OK, <laughs> I mean, like what? I mean, I guess you might be like, a, uh, yeah. Right, exactly. So I, I find that the um, the deflections from being called right wing and clinging to the label liberal very interesting. But anyways, we're going we're going around in that discussion. Maybe you guys can talk about like maybe Destiny, you can talk about how your views have evolved on this free speech debate. I know mine have tons, but. Yeah, maybe you go first. Um, yeah, sure. So unironically, internally, I probably hold out a lot of the beliefs that I outwardly criticize today just because I realized the, the social impact of the way that other people uh, participate in these types of online discussions. So for a specific example of this, I um, t- so two examples. I'm in favor of people saying essentially whatever they want, that, that any insult shouldn't carry with it some, uh, you, you know, some gravity that, you know, the connotation of the word 
can can overcome whatever past prejudices it was used with, et cetera. Or that, for instance, having representation in media isn't necessarily the most important thing in the world, that I could play a million different video games or watch movies where the lead character is Asian or black or whatever. And these are beliefs that I genuinely hold today. I really, I, these things are things that don't bother me. Um, now, whether that's because I am white and, and you know, that, that's a whole other discussion, but I'll say right now that these are things that don't generally bother me. Um, and I would talk about these things all the time and a lot of people would agree with me and I'm fairly articulate and I felt like I was making good arguments and I, I felt good about the people that agreed with me and that followed me. And, but what I noticed is that as the years ticked on, um, any time something would happen that diverted from certain cultural norms, all the people that I thought were on the same page as me suddenly started to shift. So for instance, I might say like, I don't care if the main characters are all women or, or all minorities or black or Mexican or whatever, that's fine. When movies, uh, you know, when film, when TV shows, when video games started to come out where they were increasing the representation of these characters, uh, I didn't care. That was fine for me. I don't care. I've said a million times that I don't care. But all of a sudden, all of the people that were following me that I was making these arguments to started to get very upset. And I noticed this trend where people that are, tend to be socially conservative will, will use things like free speech or, you know, free ideas and the marketplace and blah, 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 that they don't actually believe in these concepts. They're just kind of like a means to an end where that mm -hmm. end is just furthering whatever the social norms of the time are. So they might say, I, I don't care what the main character in any film or video game looks like. But what they really mean is that 95% of them right now are white, straight and male. And I hope it stays that way. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that, yeah, and it's, that was, that was a very frustrating realization for me to come to because it's like, Oh God, wait a second. Like, th yeah, it, it felt like um, all of these arguments that I, that I thought I were making, I was making well, the people following, me didn't actually care about those. It, I was just kind of a convenient way for them to argue with other people that weren't being represented, right? Mm -hmm. That my arguments were just being used in a negative fashion socially. And that really bothered me. Yeah, I think I went through a similar realization because being a left-leaning ex-Muslim <clears throat> who does, you know, think it's important to criticize religion, but then, you know, you have to put it in the context of the, the climate and what you're saying and how you're saying it, what media you're saying. You, you don't go on rebel and rebel media or Breitbart and say, like, there's no place for Islam. Uh, you know, should Islam be eradicated? Shit like that. You don't. That, that's just, I find, highly irresponsible. So I came to uh, yeah, the realization. Yeah, I agree a million percent with it. Just as a quick, like, I, I went to school for music, and, like, I, I should understand that. But I, I, for some reason with speech, I treated it totally different, where the idea was that, like, whatever you say, that's what you mean. And if people misinterpret it, that's their fault. But that's so stupid because everything you say is seated in, like, a cultural context exactly. you have to be aware of. And, yeah, I totally, I don't know how I didn't get that earlier. Exactly. And so, you know, if I'm in Pakistan, uh, I'm not going to go and criticize Christianity along with Islamists on Islamist outlets. You know what I mean? So it makes a big difference mm -hmm. who, you're who you're speaking to, where your voice is coming from. These kinds of things didn't seem to matter to the people that were kind of using me as an ex-Muslim to criticize Islam. And then I'm like, wow, there's something really sinister going on here. And I took a step back and like, you know, I think this political climate with the resurgent far right has really, really helped to expose who was actually principled and concerned for minorities and who actually just wanted to bash Muslims. So, yep. yeah. <laughs> and Nasreen, I mean, you, you've put out articles about, you know, how hate speech leads to violence. And I think recently we really saw that in America. So, you know, if you can talk about your position on 
free speech? Well, I think the whole free speech thing has become way more complicated than it actually is because they are, there are so many, as you just exhibited, so many bad faith actors, even though I don't like to use the term bad faith because it's like the first thing classical liberals throw at you and you just know you're about to lose an hour of your life. <laughs> going around in circles um but yeah it's just it's very simple i think what we have where we fall down is because we end up having these sort of abstract discussions about freedom of speech and what it is and it's a slippery slope and they'll come for you next and when actually no one is shutting down anyone's free speech that's that's the sort of myth in all of this is that in the beginning when people would accuse me of shutting down free speech I wouldn't even question the premise and I would say no you know this is this is why free speech should be shut down um, and then I realized I actually hadn't been advocating shutting down free speech at all there's 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 two types of free speech controversy one is the legal one mm-hmm. which is you know, state intervention mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to prevent people from either speaking at a conference or on, you know, Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London or from entering the country um, or for being put in jail, being put in jail, such as Anjum Chowdhury in the UK. Mm-hmm. That is a very high bar, which is incitement to hatred, to violence. And also libel comes into that mm-hmm. as well. Like people forget that libel is a big part of free speech that no one really seems to have a big problem with, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's Not going libel uh, as in the way Majid Nawaz understands it, though, right? Like, no. You send no, him a, a tweet asking why he tweeted out a shitty article and he screenshotted you and is working to sue you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not the kind of free speech I'm looking for. That's just that's just thin skin. Um but yeah, no, for example, you know, the UK in particular has very strict libel laws and I don't see many people um demonstrating in the street that libel laws are a violation of free speech, right? Because mm-hmm. everyone knows that they might get libeled as well. Mm-hmm. So that it's, you know, it's good for everyone can see the value in libel laws. And until the, in the sort of all, you know, far right or white nationalist movements began to become more popular in Europe and you had generational identity in Europe and Tommy Robinson in the past two years in the UK, no one really was fighting for the right of radicals to have free speech either, whether it was Muslims or anyone else. But then suddenly everyone's very concerned about the right of Tommy Robinson or, you know, Steve Bannon or Selner in Germany Mm -hmm. to have the right to speak. And so that's the first bit, which is how much do we want to empower the state to shut down properly, classic shutting down of someone for having hateful or insightful views. Mm -hmm. That is a conversation that has been happening for a very long time. Right. It's been happening for two, three hundred years Mm -hmm. from the beginning of basically legislation regarding free speech. And some countries started to go down a stricter route, such as the UK. Others, such as the US, are a bit more licentious with free speech. But the US also has libel laws. It Mm -hmm. also has something uh, in the Constitution against fighting words, which I take it to mean incitement. So there's there's no such thing as absolute free speech. Mm-hmm. on a legal level anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So there's not much controversy around that. And I'm very open to actually having that discussion. I think 
you know, a country's constitution, its laws are open to interpretation and reinterpretation as times change, right? So, mm -hmm. for example, I'm very open to people reviewing free speech laws uh, in, in the digital era, for example, mm -hmm. um, and saying that, you know, when free speech laws first came into effect, there was only one or two types of publishing, which is books and newspapers. And now we have social media, we have WhatsApp, we have all these ways of sending information. So that's one debate, which I think is fine and non-toxic and actually a healthy debate mm -hmm. to have. Then there's the second debate, which is, you know, if you refuse to appear on, with someone on a panel, is that shutting down free speech? No. Right, exactly. You know, uh, you know is, is objecting to something someone said in a column where they vilified Muslims and asked them to apologize for that, is that shutting down free speech? No. Is demanding as a student body in a university that someone who thinks that women who have abortions should be arrested, mm. you know, do you as a student body have the right to protest that? That is not shut down free speech. So this is so this is this whole confected argument that we keep having all the time, because successfully, the free speech myth people have mm -hmm. managed to draw us all in into a conversation about freedom of speech when it is not about freedom of speech as such. Mm -hmm. It is about how much, as individuals, we want to curate the public discussion in our civilizations mm -hmm. and the public discussion has fallouts real life fallouts for people of color and for immigrants and for women and for jewish people and for transgender people like it's all about trying to curate the public discussion to make sure that we don't create an environment that is unsafe for these people. And this is this the fact that it's become a free speech crisis issue, I think is a massive red herring. Mm -hmm. Sure, are there two or three incidents where people have been, you know, I, I, I've just done a load of research on this for a book that I'm writing and it is staggering how much when you follow the breadcrumbs of every free speech crisis story, there is nothing there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there is, it's stunning that there are so many of these crises that are either not real or are confected, right? Where it's kind of a death by free speech ruse that in the US in particular is played by many right-wing organizations mm -hmm. that kind of fund student groups on college campuses to book the most controversial and the most ridiculous person to come on stage so that there is objection to that. And then people are like, see, you know, snow, snowflakes, freedom of speech being shut mm -hmm. down, etc. So there's there's a there's a very confected, very bad faith, very deliberately twisted aspect to this debate. The problem, and this is the bit that I'm concerned with, because you know, people who are going to have a bad faith conversation are going to do it, whatever you, whatever you do, right? Mm -hmm. What concerns me is those that should know better, who are the liberals. Right. The people that don't have an agenda to push, that aren't trying to create culture wars, that aren't trying to drive a wedge between, you know, people of color and white people or whatever. Those who are on, on the curators of the conversations, the, you know, the, the, the publishers, the journalists, the columnists, the writers, the TV presenters, you know, economists, editors, mm -hmm. New Yorker editors, that whole class of public discussion curator have been caught on the wrong side 
of this confected issue because free speech is a very dear value to them, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of pausing and saying, actually, this is not about free speech, it's about something else. I don't know what it is, but it's about something else. And on that premise, we're getting discussion. Um, instead of doing that, they're like, oh, no, definitely. Yeah, this is terrible. You know, there, there's no platform being shutting people down. And so they're the ones that I'm really disappointed in. Right. And um, you, uh, there's a quote from your article, which I think uh, covers this well. Freedom of speech is no longer a value. It has become a loophole exploited with impunity by trolls, racists and ethnic cleansing advocates. They are aided by a group I call useful liberals. The defend to the death your right to say it folk and the writer Mari Uyehara calls them the free speech grifters, those who flog yeah. PC culture as a singularly eminent threat to the freedom of expression. And as you said, it's often not even about like free speech being limited. What are your thoughts on say like, you know, Alex Jones being booted from social media or the, you know, the Nazi Twitter platform Gab losing uh, access to PayPal and whoever was processing their payments? What are your thoughts on things like that? Well, I think this is where it gets interesting um, because this is this is where we have new methods of speech, right? I think that one could legitimately question whether removing a platform from Alex Jones is depriving him of his free speech rights to be on Twitter and be racist like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I like think everyone it else. Be, yeah, it could be legitimately said that Twitter is a private non-state actor um, and it has the right to make an informed decision about the risks of having someone like Alex Alex Jones on its platform and the responsibilities that they owe Alex Jones's victims and that that responsibility that has is the responsibility that we all have when we are curating a public discussion. I go mm-hmm. back to the point about how it's about the public discourse mm-hmm. and the curators of that public discourse are private individuals and they all have the right to make that decision, right? They all have the right to say, we feel like this is toxic and that it is potentially harmful. And, you know, if one reduces it to your own, your own circle, right? We, are, we allow people to make decisions about who they want to interact with and consult with in their own personal and professional lives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because your own professional life and personal life is a private matter. And you have the right to say, this is harmful to me and harmful to people around me. And therefore, I'm going to recuse and withdraw myself from this platform, mm-hmm. whether it's an office or whatever. So I personally think that to decision is correct. Um, and that they are pursuing, you know, or, or, or they're basically litigating a case that involves them being a curator of a public discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, does Alex Jones have freedom of speech? Yes, he can. You know, he can go and stand in the street and say whatever he wants and chase the parents of kids that have been murdered and saying they're crisis actors right. and will not and will not lose his liberty or his life. Um, and so, you know, the fact that he doesn't have the right to do that on every single platform he chooses to, it's a different matter. Yeah, I think this is the big thing here. Like, I, I get so frustrated in uh, the 
atheist scene and movement where these things are brought up as like legit oh my gosh milo was taken off of twitter free speech is over the evil left and you know alex jones being taken off of youtube that's the end of free speech and uh it's just this isn't this isn't uh, what i consider i mean these are companies putting out a product and they have a right to decide if someone is ruining how their product or service is being used, they have a right to remove them from it. Like Richard Spencer being removed from the gym, like the crying Nazi Chris Cantwell being taken off of a, a dating service. I remember people were outraged and called it like leftist groupthink that the poor guy can't even date anymore. And it's like, well, no, he's not entitled to a dating platform. I mean, he could be a threat to their other customers. So they're perfectly in the right, I feel, to remove them. And I don't think that that's a free speech issue. And Destiny, you had some interesting thoughts on this, I know. Oof, these are, um, yeah, these are all things I spent a lot a lot of time talking about. I'm just going back through uh, what we said earlier. So the first thing about um, libel laws, uh, oftentimes what I find when I have conversations with people is they, they tell me one thing, but I have to use uh, several several test cases to figure out what it is they actually believe because they're not very forthcoming with it oftentimes. So I, I hear a lot of free speech advocates will talk about how freedom of speech is important, liberal values, First Amendment for the United States, our Bill of Rights, you know, all this is really, really important. But then when you turn around and ask them, okay, well, it's interesting that you you believe that. And I see a lot of these people <clears throat> constantly talk about the importance of free speech and all this. When I go to your YouTube, or if I look at your Twitter, or if I look at any social media you have, I, I notice that you're strangely silent when Trump threatens to attack the press. When yes. he threatens to open up libel laws and, and, and sue journalists that say bad things about him. And when he when he says he wants to uh, you know make it so that people that burn the flag are no longer considered citizens of the United States, like these are pretty big First Amendment, right? We've got yep. freedom of the press, freedom to protest your government, you know. I don't understand how you can be so quiet when the head of state is saying these things. And it, and what it, and this is where I get to that point where it's like, so it feels to me like freedom of speech is a useful tool for you, but you don't really care about it as a concept. It's more so that you want to use it to further your conservative agenda and that, you know, if, if you can use it in an argument one day, that's fine. But if, if it's used against you, you abandon that principle immediately. Um, Roping back into what was said on the last half, and I, I can't believe that people don't see the irony here is um, when you talk about Twitter or Facebook banning somebody for political reasons, that is freedom of speech mm. as a private company, or at least insofar as I understand in the United States, it might be a little different in the United Kingdom, but in the United States as a private company, you can platform or deplatform people based on their political opinions. That's your right as a private entity. That is your freedom of speech. And and you'll get somebody that will say, I don't think a private company should have the right to do that. And and they'll they'll say that. I don't think they should deplatform people based on their political views. But then when you ask them, okay, well, we had a very famous case in, in Colorado where a baker didn't want to serve a cake to somebody because they were gay and he didn't want to do that, they'll say, well, you can't force him to serve that cake. That's compelled speech. Well, okay, well, what do you call it when you're asking Twitter or Facebook to be mandated by the government not to ban people based on their political opinion, that they have to host certain opinions that, you know, they might not want to host? How, how are these so dissimilar? Except, you know, <laughs> like racists and conspiracy theorists aren't protected classes, do you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. not even getting into, we don't even have to get that far to find the, the, the huge irony. Right. And then to move into, uh, the, you know, the next point you guys brought up, that, that, People will, will straw man you into defending freedom of speech. And sometimes you have to, people are very, very aggressive with straw manning, with giving you positions that you don't actually hold. And I find myself defending things sometimes like I have to step back and be like, wait a second, 
I don't actually exactly. Do How did exactly. I get caught in? Yeah, and people do people do this thing with free speech where it's like everything else that that conservatives. Um, hopefully, my my bias is showing. I don't care. Where um, you know conservatives will do this thing where all of a sudden you you're in an argument and then you at, at some point you're like, wait a second. I feel uncomfortable because I don't feel like I have any good arguments. And it's like, oh, wait a second. I never argue for this. You know, somebody would be like, how can you, you know, Colin Kaepernick is, is kneeling at, at NFL football games. Like, why do you hate the U.S. Army so much? And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, like, they're imperialistic. You know, we spend a lot of money on it. Uh, wait a second. Wait, this isn't about the military at all. Like, wait, why am I Why am I in this discussion with you? Like, what is him kneeling at the NFL game have to do with the military, you know? And people use, like, these freedom of speech or the troops or nationalism. Do you love your country? They'll wrap themselves in these concepts. And any time you critique any part of their platform, they feel like their platform is, is inseparable from, from these core ideas that really like 95%, you know, give or take a few points, probably agree on like, no, and at least in the United States, I don't think anybody hates the troops. So there probably are some, but it's a very small percentage. I don't think most people hate freedom of speech. You know, this, this idea that people defend themselves with these values so they can't be um, attacked is so, is so frustrating. Right. Um, that the left has no arguments. And so they want to shut down freedom of speech. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then that, and then the last thing I've got, I've got written here, the, um, I think that there are a lot of super interesting discussions on freedom of speech. I don't think that there are any clear winners. I think that it starts, you, you have to get very, very rooted into what you value. Um, and it makes me very upset because the people that champion free speech are so horrendously misinformed about it. I don't know if you guys all saw the, um, I, I don't know what your tolerance is for, for stuff like this, but if you saw the Dave Rubin video where I believe it was an Israeli student asked him about um, how do you feel about people that, that free speech leads to violence? Violence against certain groups of people. Did you did you ever watch this video? No, I didn't. Yeah, so basically, she she asked that question, and he was incredibly indignant. And the video was you know called uh, you know Dave Rubin owns college liberal or whatever. But the thing that shocked me the most is that. The, the, the question of, you know, free speech w- can lead to violence. What do you do about that? It was very clear watching that video that Dave Rubin had never considered that as a concept before. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ha- this is like, I am a high school freshman and I'm flirting with this idea and now I'm going to look into the first line arguments against it. This should have been solved so long ago. And that's actually a really interesting discussion, you know, and, you know, some people might say, and I noticed it's tempting to say that free speech can lead to violence, therefore we shouldn't value it. But we do do that with other things in society. Um, Mm -hmm. For instance, our access to automobiles leads inevitably to Mm -hmm. a lot more death and destruction, but we accept that trade-off. Our desire for privacy from the government, I'm sure the government could protect us from almost every terrorist attack if we gave them unlimited access to all of our communications, but we obviously make that trade-off as well. So there, it might be that freedom of speech as a concept is so important that it's worth trading off the comfort of some groups of people. Maybe, maybe not, but those discussions aren't happening. Those are the real that. discussions, yeah. Those yeah, are. exactly. And th- that would be a fascinating discussion. You know, like, should, Is it okay for some groups in society to be harmed to protect this value? I would love to Yikes. hear those discussions. But instead it's, instead it's like the SJWs and the PC police want to take away all of our freedom of speech. And I really just want to be able to say the N word online on Twitter. Right, but that's what it boils down to. Yeah. That's and 99% of the time I hear like, I'm a, and you know, I, it's so cringy because there are so many labels that I would use on myself that I will never publicly, like I would never say I'm part of the atheist movement, even though I'm a very anti-theistic person. I'm right. very anti, yes. but I would never call myself like I'm an atheist publicly because Christ, all the people that come <laughs> up and rally around you are so horrible. I know. And I, and I believe in, yeah, and I believe in free speech as well, you know, but yeah. but Jesus, not like Dave Rubin does, not right. like I'm going to have a, 
Oh, oh man, like Candace I'm Owens is going to come to my show and talk for 20 minutes without me interrupting her. Single or Ben Shapiro is going to tell me to my face that he hates my lifestyle and right? he would never serve a cake. To, oh, oh my gosh. I don't know, Nesreen, if you if you are familiar with Dave Rubin, but if you're researching these free speech. I am, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I try not to um, because I think that most of the time, I think I think there's two discussions about freedom of speech happening. One is an online one where it's become part of this sort of radical. It's it's sort of a radicalization tool, really. Yeah. Um, online, if if one is going to be completely straightforward about it, and I think Dave Rubin and and, and the rest, I I just struggle. I struggle to take them seriously in the sense that. I just know that they're not interested in having an actual discussion. They're basically preachers, right? Dave actually hates free speech. He really does. He's threatened to sue journalists just for calling him right wing. He's actually tweeted stuff about uh, defunding the ACLU because they posted something positive about Linda Sarsour once. Yeah. And I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and I think the way I think about these people, I I found it helpful to. I I I spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia, and they. Oh really? Yeah, Mm -hmm. they remind me a lot of um, of in the sort of nineteen nineties. I don't know if you're familiar with this destiny. I'd be very impressed if you were, because it's very niche. Um, oh. In the 1990s, there was a, a sort of satellite TV revolution in the Arab world, the same way there has been an online revolution in the Western world. Yeah, that's world. when we got our satellite dish. We stopped yes. having two channels. It was amazing. Exactly, exactly. So every ha- most households in the Middle East and the Arab world stopped having just the state TV channels and began receiving pan-Arab satellite transmissions from like Lebanon, Mm -hmm. Syria, Egypt, etc. And one of those streams was uh, religious TV channels that just had these young, telegenic, very good orators that were preachers. They wore suits and they didn't have beards and they were just as radical. Oh, so this is what's happening though. Yeah, they were just they were just as radical as the old kind of bearded mm-hmm. um, Saudi establishment ones that you'd kind of see on a Friday. Mm. And this young, youngish group of of TV preachers would have these very sophisticated discussions about how we need to be religious, we need to follow religion, not because it's an obligation, but because it makes sense. Right. And so they were very rationalist oh, about dear. religion. <laughs> and they and, and when I look at Jordan Peterson, all I see is these guys. Yes. Right? Like, and have you seen I that see- there are some of these like hardcore Islamist types that are Jordan Peterson fans, anti-feminist. They've picked up are. on the anti-SJW rhetoric. There's Muslim MRAs. It's like the yep. crossover is. Yeah, there's a huge amount of synergy yeah. between the two, because fundamentally what these people are arguing for is social darwinism right Mm. they're not they're not even necessarily left or right wing they're just you know patriarchal social darwinists who believe that you know that believe that women are inferior that believe that you know the men who are stronger are better than men who are weaker you know they value very old-fashioned fetishized ideas about so they're like right wing from the 1800s (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but they you know, but they wear fancy suits yeah, and they have sure. league degrees. One, one thing that I think is really important to, to distinguish here, and, and it's actually something that's so frustrating, um, is that I, I actually do think 
there is a marked difference between so what you're describing almost sounds like the kind of new like neo-nazi strategy for selling i guess maybe you could say fascism or certain mm-hmm. types of aggressive or offensive ideologies to people where um you you know people realize that dressing up in hooded cloaks with tiki torches is a bad idea no mm-hmm. people are going to look at you like freaks people are going to say you're obviously bad but having people like richard spencer who is well-spoken he is cordial he's he's somewhat handsome i guess um you know appears you know nice on all of his TV shows. He doesn't use bad words. He dog whistles like crazy. He doesn't say anything overtly um, horrible. I think that um, this type of strategy, it sounds like what you're describing with, with the well-dressed people that are you know, selling the old same brands of, of sexism. It sounds similar to that. Mm-hmm. But I think that... Or sorry, go ahead. So I was just going to say, you're not a fan of Peterson still, are you? <laughs> Whoa, I was never a fan of oh, Peterson. Oh, Don't okay, say okay. that. Sorry, oh, sorry. my God. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Oh, geez. Uh, I think that his personal self-help stuff, that very narrow field, I think is okay-ish. But Jesus, anytime he strays outside of that lane, it is abhorrent. Okay. Um, so, um the, uh, the, the the frustrating thing is that I think that these people are in the very slim minority. Um, I'm about mm. to pair bunch of lefty talking points um, and it's going to hurt to do it but I, I think I have to say that it's correct at this point I think the the frustrating thing in my personal experience um, if I get somebody who wants to have a discussion about I'll use African Americans and they believe that African Americans are genetically inferior to, to white people I would rather talk to that person than 10 people that say I really love all minorities but, and then here are all the reasons why I don't think we should have any sort of um, financial redistribution. I don't think we should have any any sort of like, um, you know, uh, fiscal help or whatever, you know, all sorts, all sorts of welfare, all sorts of electronic so benefits, all this. So what about this, you know, renewed rational skeptic interest in race and IQ, you know what I mean? Like... The- I think that what happens is most of them are just idiots. I I, th- I really do think know. that's what happens. It, it feels like it's not, but I'll use a great example in the United States. When it okay, so healthcare in the United States, I genuinely believe is impossible as this is. I don't know how I still believe this, but I genuinely believe that most Americans want healthcare for most people in the United States. I really do want. I really do believe that most people, outside of a very fringe amount of sociopaths or or something, genuinely do want. Most most people to be healthy. So the question is, well, how the hell do you get half of the country, at least politically speaking, against something like single payer healthcare then? Mm-hmm. You know, because empirically, every Western nation in the world that I'm familiar with, save like Switzerland and, and maybe a very, very small number of others, use some form of single payer healthcare. So how do you get all of these Americans that have the value of, of what, this is where I talk about, remember earlier, value and policy positions. They have the value of wanting people to have healthcare, but then they come out and, and they defund, you know, the ACA, they, they, they vote against any sort of single payer, they don't want Medicare expansions. Like, how does this happen? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it just comes down to a level of informedness where they'll say their answer won't be, if you ask somebody, why do you hate Obamacare? Their answer will never be, and I think genuinely, their answer won't be inside, well, I want less people to have healthcare. What they'll say is, well, I think the government muddies everything up and the free market can do better. So it ends up being where you have this value, but it's processed by somebody that is so uninformed that they end up with a policy position that becomes indistinguishable from somebody that is filled with hatred. And I think that even though it might sound like I'm just mincing words or, or being, uh, you know, uh, you know, linguistically trying to separate these things, I think that there are huge differences between these groups of people and how they have to be treated uh, in terms of bringing them over to to agree, if it's even possible, to bring them over to agree with the policy positions that better represent the kind of world that you want to build. And how do you propose that they're treated? 
The dumb ones, not the malicious ones. Um, man, if I had an answer for that, I would probably be out doing it. <laughs> um, I, I mean, like my 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 perfect world goal. I mean, like the thing is that uh, to be clear, I don't practice in rhetorical techniques of persuasion because it's it's oftentimes boring to me. I like to just have the fact based conversations. So I, I mean, like my masturbatory fantasy would be that if you present somebody with enough compelling evidence that single payer is the best way to go for healthcare, that they would be persuaded by logic and fact and reason. But I, I mean, the reality of the situation is people respond differently to certain types of emotional stories, to certain types of narratives. But I mean, my goal would be to that if you understand that people um, want most people to have health care, then your goal should be to sell it to them in a way where you don't accuse them of running contra-indicative or whatever, their own values. That rather than saying, But that's um, what they're doing, though. Yeah, that's what you think they're doing. It is it is what they're doing. It's what I know they're doing. But 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 I think it's important that um man, I just listened to an episode on this of somebody else actually talking about this. But basically, we we have we have um we have images of ourselves in our mind where so I might think I am a good person and good people want most people to have health care. If you come at me and you say for most people to have health care, we need to do X. That's going to be a more successful persuasion technique than to say you don't want most people to have health care because you believe in Y. Because immediately when you start a conversation off like that, well they'll think is well hold on i know i'm a good person why would i listen to you you must be lying sure. and that's sort of um yeah but, to, to reconcile that cognitive dissonance they will wave away everything you're saying yeah, but when you're ahead. talking about things like spreading racism scientific racism nazism i think mm-hmm. it's understandable that someone can get frustrated and angry and just say the truth rather than coddle them and baby them and try to slowly slowly coax them you know what i mean oh like, i totally that's what i do i totally understand i have no desire to do this i'm speaking i guess to the uh, the the person that wants to take up persuasive techniques or poly i just call these people if i get somebody on my show that says that they are, are believe in the superior of white genes my first two questions are well what do you do for school and oftentimes it's like college dropout or whatever and then what do you do for work and oftentimes it's some very menial mediocre thing it's like okay well what did you do with your superior aryan genetics that like makes you worthy of even talking to <laughs> yeah so i mean like i, I totally understand what you're saying in terms of it's frustrating because then um, this becomes a like a scolding point for like people that want to scold the left right no you have to hug nazis no you can't like tell them that they're racist that only makes them more nazi and and that's well i guess the thing that makes me the thing that makes me sad sometimes, and this is where most of my, where most of the people that support me come from, is that it feels sometimes like you have this dichotomy of truth versus social justice, where you can only pursue one of those at a time. You can either say like, well, let's have this fact-based conversation, blah, 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 or you can say, I don't want to talk about that. Rhetorically, I want to focus on social justice. And I actually think it's a mistake that left-leaning people have seemed to just concede all of the fact arguments, and somehow these become conservative talking points. like. But how so? So, for instance, like conservatives will always say, um, like, my Ben Shapiro does this. My facts don't care about your feelings or, you know, I want to talk a fact like I'm too interested in the facts. But it's like, okay, well, let's have this conversation. The facts are generally on the left-leaning person's right. side. So how so do I don't they concede agree. it? Um, well, how they well because it seems like they concede it because a lot of the times they don't want to engage it in the conversation. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah, so for instance, like when it comes to immigration, and maybe this is just my own personal brand of, of sociopathy showing, when I talk about immigration in the United States, I will never talk about um, providing a better life for um, immigrants, for helping them escape from bad situations, well, mainly because I don't think conservatives care, but, but because I don't need to. Like, I can just speak on a purely 
economic level and win that argument every single time. Because no economist, any no economist is ever going to tell you that immigration to your country is a net fiscal drain. And this is one of the things that um, But do you it was see that, that someone whose life is at risk or someone who's recently come here may not be able to have that level of detachment, understandably, like, you know, they feel like they have to justify their existence and their you know, being here. Oh yeah. For, I'm talking from my perspective as a, or like as a perspective from a public figure that argues, I wouldn't expect an individual to engage in these types of conversations. The, uh, the responsibility is much different between an individual versus, a somebody like, so I would consider myself like a semi-public figure or yeah. whatever, right? Because but our conversation, yeah. public figures, right? Like say that you're mm-hmm. from an immigrant background or like me from an, a Muslim background, I get so much shit from, even though I, I, I have talked to far right people pretty calmly and stuff. I still get, you know, my um, the levels of my authenticity challenged because I'm not hateful and generalizing Muslims. So I get mm-hmm. shit like she's not a real ex-Muslim. Her parents were never really Muslim to begin with. Uh, you know, she didn't really experience suffering. She wasn't oppressed enough in Saudi Arabia. Like shit yeah, that, you know, if someone on the left would have said to Ayan they would have lost their mind. Imagine telling an ex-Muslim woman who's grown up in Saudi Arabia and dealt with morality police and their canes that they have not been oppressed enough in Saudi Arabia simply because I had access to, like, you know, uh, a British school and a community pool and uh, morality police wasn't allowed into my compound so I didn't have to deal with them 24-7. That doesn't mean that I did not experience oppression in Saudi Arabia. I guess it's just the the feeling that I get is like, um, let's say that you've got two employees, one is Sam and one is Nick, and and Nick is coming up for a performance review, and one manager wants to fire Nick because they don't like him. And let's say that Nick's performance is is on par or better than the the other than Sam's performance, and and you go to talk to your boss, like, okay, well, listen, you can't fire Nick. Nick is a really cool dude. That's so bad to do it. It feels like when you say that, yeah, yeah, that's you've already conceded, yeah. What? Yeah, it feels like you've conceded that, that you're ignoring the fact that, wait, hold on, you're not winning by your own argument. I don't actually need to talk about whether Nick is a good person or not. You're just wrong on what you think is your fact-based argument. And like, and Ben Shapiro, oh God, they all do this so much. When Ben Shapiro will get up and he'll talk about, well, you know, if you want to be called a he <laughs> and you actually have a vagina, my facts, you know, the fact, blah, 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 don't care what you, like, what facts are you talking about? The entire APA, the American Psychology Association, stands against you. Um, biologists stand against you. There is no scientific figure that is ever going to defend your very socially constructed hardcore dichotomy of male versus female like that is literally your feeling against the entire yeah, fact yeah. <laughs> of multiple scientific disciplines like don't con- i hate i just hate it when liberals or people on the left i should say concede the fact-based argument immediately and then try to appeal to social values um i understand the, the value or the need for social values of course but like don't 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 just give up the fact-based argument like you've already lost 99 percent of the time that's those arguments are on your side yeah, no, no, anyway. no, i i agree with yeah. you there 100 percent. i uh-huh. just I'm just saying that when someone who it's more of a personal cost to is put in that position oh, yeah, of having very, to very defend their existence, then it's very hard. And it also is like, I don't want to fucking engage with every asshole that wants me to, you know, justify my very existence. And you shouldn't have to, right? Everything is not always yeah. up for debate. Like there was a prominent atheist dude who's one of the moderates and not one of the worst ones. He was on uh, someone's YouTube channel talking about how minor, you know, everything should be up for debate and minorities should have to, like, you know, def- justify their existence in a debate. 
And I, I just think that's a really douchey thing to, to say, especially when it has no bearing or impact on you. Yeah, it's like a form of oppression that most people in a certain level of privilege wouldn't even acknowledge. But yeah, I totally agree. It's like, why is everything constantly repetitive? This is the sunlight. Going back to the sunlight is the best disinfectant argument, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do we have to repeatedly, repeatedly talk about why Holocaust denial is bad and why, you know, racism is bad when we've won these arguments? Well, I'd only add one thing, which is that I don't know, maybe my experience is different, but I think my the interpretation that some of these people are just stupid mm-hmm. is kind of an optimistic one in that I would prefer it if people just didn't get it. And I think it's because they don't want to. Um, mm. th- I think this, this is why I actually don't engage at all um, or engage very little with any... Uh, feedback I get because I feel like what we're dealing with now is a group of people who who have decided that there are certain certain things that they're going to use to shore up their worldview um, and shore up their status, right? And their status might be only relatively in terms of immigrants, right? So like if you are a white person who doesn't have a great life, doesn't have a great job, doesn't have university education, as you said, you know, it is more likely that your status vis-a-vis other white people is uh, not as you would like, but you will always have status over Mexican immigrants, right? Um, or you will always have status over Muslims or whatever. And so I feel like this is... There's, it's always a case of trying to shore up your status and your worldview. So slightly kind of highfalutin and maybe too abstract way of looking at things. Um, because it just feels to me that there is now a whole kind of hierarchical. It's, it's all about hierarchy. The way I think about it now mm-hmm. is it's all about hierarchy. Um, and it's all about people holding on to whatever little relative advantage they have in that hierarchy. Do you, um, I'm curious, when you look at somebody like Dave Rubin or Sargon of Akkad, are you familiar with these two figures? Yes, yeah. Do you, do you think that these people are genuinely racist? I think they are, yeah. I think, I think those two particular examples, I think they are in that they, if, if, if they, even if they have not admitted it to themselves, they genuinely put their self-interest above the safety and security and, you know, general well-being of people of other color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if that is not racism, then I don't know. Yeah, so is. maybe this is so interesting. I don't even know how you would go about quantifying this. Um, mm. So we fundamentally differ on our view here. This is what I feel, and I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but I really feel like Man, if I was wrong on this, I don't even know what's possible for me to hate people any more than I already do. But it, it, I, what I feel is if I were to lock <laughs> Dave Rubin or if I were to lock Sargon of Akkad in a room mm-hmm. and I were to lock him in a chair and in front of him, I had all the smartest people in the world. And I just for 48 hours bombarded them with fact after fact. If you do this thing, um, indoctrinated them with intersectionality that, hey, if you're a minority, your life can be impacted by all sorts of different systems that um, not having representation in media can lead you to feel shitty. The way that your um, classmates treat you because of your skin color, the way that the police treat you, that all of these things. If I would have bombarded them with 
irrefutable fact. And, and that every every time they brought up an objection, oh, well, what about this? That there's a sociologist or an anthropologist or some sort of political side would be like, oh, well, nope, here's this, here's this, that they would come out of that room. Yeah. And I really, really want to feel like their internal values of, I did like, because when I, I've talked to Sargon, oh God, a very disappointing amount of time. And our whole conversation on black issues in America, his solution was, well, they should just get married. That'll fix all their problems. It was so incredibly ignorant. But I really do feel like if these people knew all of the facts that they're, that they would change their mind because I don't feel like they genuinely hate okay. these types of people. <laughs> do you think I'm wrong? If I, can, uh, I completely, I completely disagree. Yeah, me too. I'm, oh, no. Yeah. And I yeah. think, but, but to be fair, I think it's probably, I don't know how you feel about this, um, but I think it's because I've spent my formative years arguing with smart, radical Muslims um, that I just know when the battle is lost. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I feel like I, I have spent so much time around rational, smart, um, you know, ostensibly good people who have fused their own self-interest and their own status in the world with their religion mm -hmm. um, because what what religion does so well is give you a sense of identity and a sense of identity vis-a-vis -vis other people that's the second yeah. most important thing that it does mm -hmm. and i i've just spent so much time talking to people that i could see like you can see it in their eyes like you sometimes you can see the wheels turning in their eyes as they try and like turn away from the fact and like move I mean, around it because to be they clear, they're yeah. There are people that I agree that this happens with. So are you familiar with like Lauren Southern? No, I don't know who that is. I'm, I'm sure there's people, I'm sure there's, I'm, okay, let's not generalize. Obviously there's yeah. people who are open to, you know, fact-based arguments, etc. But mm -hmm. I think as a whole, what we're dealing with now is that we're dealing with an identitarian religion. Um, sure. and, and I think that you can't really, you can't really fight that. Um, I guess what it feels like to me is that we agree that both these types of people exist. It's just their distribution. It feels to me like if I were to take 100% of people that have racist policy positions, what it feels like is 5% of them are the driving very intelligent people. These are the people that will say um, immigrants from other cultures with other values are coming into our countries and through crime and their refusal to integrate are d destroying our countries um, through no fault of anybody, but they're just destroying our countries and we need to protect our heritage and our, like these are the people that are genuinely racist. But, and the, dog but Dave Rubin is fine with those positions. In fact, that, but that's what I'm saying. He I'm labels people Tommy Robinson extremely moderate. Yeah, and this is well, and this is the main criticism, or this is a big criticism that a lot of lefties have of liberals, is that five percent of these people intentionally do this. The other ninety-five percent, because the other people dog whistle it, they, they're too dumb to see that, so they're just along for the ride. So somebody like Tommy Robertson might say, "I want to hate on all Muslims because of all these reasons," and if you attack me, you're attacking my freedom of speech. And then all of the the other ninety-five percent of people are like, whoa, 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 wait, hold on, he said freedom of speech. Yeah, we should defend that dude, rather than them actually hating the. These people, they're just kind of swept along for the ride because they're too dumb to see that they're being manipulated um, by, by as useful idiots, essentially. Like, I don't doubt people. that there are mm -hmm. stupid people like that. I just think that the two that you specifically mentioned, they okay. may very well also be stupid and ignorant, but they passionately feel for these things as well. I've observed Dave for years now, 
And I used to buy that argument maybe three years ago. But when it's a consistent pattern of him feeling so strongly for these far-right lunatics and really feeling their values and really sanitizing them and going out of yeah. his way to portray them as exceptionally moderate, saying Katie Hopkins <laughs> is a very nice person. Or Candace Owens. Or yeah. Candace Owens, or, or whatever. But then you see the outrage when Google just has a diverse doodle just on mm-hmm. you know the Google homepage. He is so mad so you can see what drives him maybe because i used to be one of these people i don't know how familiar with my past but like if you look at videos of me eight years ago you will find like videos of me making very strong arguments for why anybody should be allowed to say like the n-word or whatever online that these should matter so maybe maybe i empathize yeah Yeah. maybe i empathize with people just because i used to be so far over in that camp but like let's go to um, a real world example i'm very curious so i so let's take the um let's take the value position of i think that men and women are i don't want to say equal but should both have equal opportunity equal respect, you know, blah, 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 under all matters of law and social pressure that anybody should be able to do whatever job they want, live the life they want, et cetera. I love women. Let's say that's like your default value. I think it's possible to, um, like, like say for Muslims, right? People will look at something like the hijab and they will say that every single woman that wears this, you know, hates it. And every single person that makes them wear this, you know, hates women. Yeah, but it's not actually true. You will find women that will advocate um, for for the hijab and even more extreme forms of of covering themselves out of their love for women. And in a really kind of bastardized sense, you get, and people call this internalized misogyny or whatever, but you will get people that seem to have these outward policy positions where they're prescribing a behavior that appears to be insanely anti-women, but because of the kind of cultural environment and social environment they live in, they're advocating for these policy positions, but they're doing it out of a love, maybe misguided, you know, for the groups of people that they outwardly appear to be attacking. But if at the same time, they, uh, you know, always are hanging uh, around prominent known misogynists saying that these people and their values are amazing, you're going to start to wonder what's driving them, right? And then anything that suggests equality for women, they shut it down and it makes them so mad, then you can no longer claim that. You know? Well, I think it's because what happens that, oh my God, I feel like I'm giving so much credibility. <laughs> it feels like um, my parents are like this too. It feels like what happens is um, it, it seems like they hate them. But if you if you understand like the paradigm through which they view the world, it, it starts to make more sense. So for instance, like you might say, okay, well, listen, like women should be allowed to wear what they want. And you might think that like um, you're making a strong argument for, for women's freedom. And then they're saying things like, well, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. It's like, no, okay. but that doesn't some- make sense if it's a repeated pattern pattern of supporting hatred of women sure, but there like, are people let's say somebody who do makes- think that hijabs are you know part of uh, just freedom of and, and i and i i don't think they should be you know made illegal or banned or anything like that either so i do think that women should be allowed to wear what they want and if they want to mm-hmm. cover their hair then so be it i'm not a, a fan of um you know religious modesty coverings but i'm also not like a reactionary atheist type that sees a hijab in uh on tv and i don't know just loses it so th- that's a whole I, the reason i don't want to discuss hijabs here is because i oh, have yeah, sure. so I- many feelings about hijabs and it's it's such a long conversation but if we could mm-hmm. stick with the racist thing or, um, or women's rights is a really good one um that where like you could have a person, for instance, that's 
um, against abortion, against birth control, um, and is pro not allowing women to, to work conventional jobs at the workplace. And all of these values can be explained through an ignorant lens of, I really love women. And I think that when abortion is legal, it encourages women to murder babies that they would otherwise love to keep. And when birth control is made legal and freely accessible, women engage in sexual relationships that make themselves less happy in marriage. And that when women are kept at home instead of in the workplace, they're genuinely happy with their children. That somebody can unironically have all of these viewpoints that come across as horrendously anti-women, but they don't actually hate women. It's just the, the, the horrible paradigm but in which they, they do view the view world. that women have a specific role uh, you mm -hmm. know, to uh, birth children or or procreate, or this is mm -hmm. this is how women women's roles are, and that's what they should be doing. That is a form of hating women in itself. You may not realize it. At least to me, I don't know if we have any, you know, pro lifers. On yeah, I, I agree but. that outwardly. <clears throat> it, 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 I agree that um, inwardly, or no, outwardly, it comes across as more or less the same. Uh, so, if you're a woman and you okay. get an abortion, you don't care why it's illegal. If so it's illegal, you think this is different. Then, yeah. for all purposes, these people are acting to push racism, to support yes. racism. But you yeah, think that sure. somehow they're doing it out of naivety and not out of actually being racist. You know, you can be like a naive sort of racist too, right? Like yeah, I call um, I call them unintentional racists. Yeah, right. So then they are racist. Well, yeah. The, well, the only difference is that the way that you have to deal with these people is fundamentally different. Okay, that's but the, let's that's just what stick I think to the question. Are are uh, they racist? Um, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Like outwardly, they advocate for racist positions. Um, internally, I guess it comes down to how you specifically define it. Um, I, yeah, I just think there's a difference between how you treat these groups of people because they respond very differently to different types but of that rhetoric. That didn't answer the question. Well, are so wait, racist? so when you, when you say racist, like, what do you mean by that? There's so many degrees of it, though. I think you just have a high bar and you're thinking Richard Spencer or maybe a, a, a KKK hood wearing guy. But there's mm -hmm. like all sorts of mild, unintentional racism that perhaps even, uh, you know, someone can engage in racism and not really be like a racist. You know what I mean? Everyone I agree, yeah. can uh, accidentally do or say something that they didn't mean to, and, and, and it's kind of, oh, why'd you do that, right? Yeah, sure. But then there are people I guess. who, you know, this is a pattern. This is, this is how they live. These are the values they subscribe to. Now, whether they come from ignorance or whether they come from just pure hatred, ultimately, both of those things, if you are repeatedly engaging in promoting that, day after day after day, sanitizing, uh, you know, people like Tommy Robinson, Katie Hopkins, what other word is there for you? You can talk about well, approaches so like, here, of dealing the, yeah, yeah. with different here, degrees different of thing, racists uh, as, a, as an aside conversation. But ultimately, yeah. I think denying that they are racist is harmful. It's, it's possible, I guess. The, the difference would be in terms of how I analyze their internal beliefs. So here's the difference. In the United States of America, President Donald Trump won the, the, the election in 2016. Is he racist? Um, he's indistinguishable from one. <laughs> oh, man, you policy. can't even just say yes for him? Are you serious? Well, so, like, the difference is that if half of America like legitimately hated minorities and women, then the only solution moving forward is a literal civil war. No, I don't no, no, think no, no, it's no, no. I'm not talking about everyone that supports him. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about him. Um, I, I think that he probably is. He's made enough statements that, uh, um, like man, the shit this is political correctness. 
<laughs> well, no, no, I, I think it's done wild. I, 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 I think I think that Trump would be part part of the the small minority that is leading other people that aren't like I think that Trump is more racist than the average Trump supporter. Does that if that makes sense? Um. So like there, Trump will say like I want to build the wall because I think Trump actually does have something against brown people. But I think that a lot of Americans will support. Yeah, yeah, but I think a lot a lot of Americans will support it because they think it'll make the country safer or help the but economy. What you're not understanding, I think, is that racists also think they're good people and they, they come from like what they think is a place of self-preservation. They're only trying to protect their homeland. They're only trying to protect their country. They're, it's not necessarily, even the KKK will say, we don't hate black people. We just want to preserve the white race. Yeah, that's the new neo-Nazi talking point. Right. Um, I, I guess maybe this, maybe it's my consequentialism talking. I, I guess I feel like looking at the internal drive is is really important to understand how to address these people. Because again, like if somebody comes up to me and they're like, I hate black people, like let's talk about social issues. My conversation with them is going to be way different than a guy that's like, I'm anti-affirmative action, pro-gentrification, pro- But I think those pro- people I, I, are less mm-hmm. harmful. The open, open racist, I feel like you can weed them out, people can ignore them or recognize mm-hmm. the threat with, associated with them. It's the people that dress it up, that repackage it, that are so dangerous right now. And so yeah, when I we agree. talk about, like, um, you know, the neo-Nazis kind of re-marketing, uh, reinventing themselves by wearing suits and stuff, um, this, you know, to go back to the sunlight being a, a disinfectant, the first, very first thing, even if you don't think that it always is a good disinfectant, is that you actually need sunlight, right? Now, if someone's uh-huh. holding an umbrella to their views and not really being open and saying, I love minorities, I just, uh, you know, I just uh, am exploring rationality and science, and uh, therefore I think that people that are not white have lower IQs. And so, you know, that is much more harmful than someone that's like, wearing a hood saying I hate people of color I I agree yeah I I agree I I think the only difference is we disagree on the internal drives of these people um I hope I'm right and I hope you're wrong because man (laughs) oh man I've already switched so much and my support of democracy and also and capitalism and everything has gone so far low because of my average view of people that I don't if if I had your view I don't know how I could handle existing in society (laughs) oh man but you know when you're Uh, a brown woman you kind of uh have more things directed at you and you pick up these like do you do you agree with that? Like maybe just oh, absolutely. Your experience is going to be far, far, far different than mine. So you might be driven to to feel much differently. I can't imagine. I mean, I can try to, but not really. Your lived experience is going to be far different than anything that I can try to envision in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know, even the the Nazis being rebranded now, there's mm-hmm. still another group that is much more legitimized, that is much more academic, that is um, much more mainstream. But they are pushing the anti-immigrant talking points, the anti-feminist talking points, the anti-trans talking points. They're holding hands with far-right people like Ben Shapiro. And that is why I criticize the so-called intellectual dark web, because they are dedicated to maintaining the same hierarchy, you know, as Nesreen was talking about hierarchies, and they are threatened by any shifts in the hierarchy. And to me, that is the way they mask it as science and rationality is far, far more dangerous than even uh, Richard Spencer trying to cover up 
the nastiness of his views because people still are seeing through Richard Spencer. He was still at Charlottesville carrying, you know, he was, was he, he was, right? Um, he must have been, right? Ooh, I should know this. I would imagine. Yeah, I know. I, I should know this too. It's like such a basic question that I'm shocked that I don't. But, <laughs> um, but you know, he, he was still, you know, pro-Unite the Right. He's still pro-Alt-Right. He's an open white nationalist. That people can still see through, even though as many maybe don't because it's been rebranded. There's a lot of stupid people out there that will follow these things. But once it becomes legitimized and academic and scientific, that is frightening to me. For sure. So, yeah, sorry. Sorry for going on a rant like that. But, um, yeah, and uh, sunlight being the best disinfectant. Nasreen, what do you think? I mean, if it was, do you think that uh, giving Trump all this airtime during the election uh, would have gotten rid of him or, you know, would have at least ensured that he wasn't elected? What, that if we'd seen that if we'd seen less of Trump? No, because we saw a lot of him, right? They gave him so much coverage mm. that he was getting that sort of sunlight, you know? Even he was being mocked and uh, everything of his was being picked up on and all his stupid responses. But did that prevent him from winning? I don't think if we'd seen less of him... Um, that anything would have been any different. But I do think that if we'd seen, if we'd seen, I don't think we saw, I don't think actually we saw as much mockery um, as we think we did in hindsight, actually. Mm. I think we, I think we mocked him to ourselves, but I don't think we actually saw that much of it. I think that there was a lot of, especially on American cable TV, I've been to see what Destiny thinks about this, I think there was a lot of glee about the fact that Trump's running for president because they were like, this is an amazing freak show mm -hmm. of Trump and his surrogates. And, you know, we're going to have them on every night. We're going to have nine people on either side of Anderson Cooper and we're gonna have a circus because it doesn't matter because Hillary's gonna win, you know? Mm. Um, and I, I just, I, so I think it wouldn't have mattered how much we saw of him, but I think it might have mattered if they had dealt with it with as much seriousness as they do now, you know? And I think at the time they just thought it was a bit of a joke and we could all come in and go at the freak show. Mm -hmm. um, and now they're all like, they're not, they're being far more considered about it. Um, but on the but I'll just, I'd, I'd like to go back to one thing. I sympathize with Destiny not being able to say that Donald Trump is racist because I think that I mean I've struggled with this mm -hmm. right because there is a new there's a new type of person right there is a new type of person that that is cosmopolitan and liberal and elite like I, so the question I ask myself all the time is, do you think Donald Trump would have had a problem if Ivanka married a black man? And I don't mm. think he would. You know what I mean? I don't Wait, think would, he would. Wait, would Donald Trump have had a problem if he married a black woman? No, no, if his daughter married a black man, right? Oh. So, and, I, and this is just me completely um, hypothesizing. But it's like Milo having a black husband. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, I'm trying, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to draw the whole, um, the continuum, right? So Trump is someone who would be happy to be, you know, he's a New Yorker, he's around people of color. Um, but at the same time, he, 
allegedly banned them from renting some of his apartments because right. he didn't think it was good for the brand. Um, and I think that, and, you know, he refers to people from Africa as people coming from shithole countries, mm -hmm. but at the same time has behaved in ways that are kind of, it's just sort of sloppy, right, about, about race. And so I think that, like, I think Trump is a racist in the sense that if he, that he has a callousness and a lack of respect for people of color as a whole, where it comes to his bottom line. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I just think he'd be, he's kind of a, he's kind of a not in my backyard racist, right? Mm -hmm. But is he a racist in the way Steve Bannon is a racist? Oh yeah, of course. Right? There's different like, degrees he, of it. There's different things, but I think the way people, the way people talk about Donald Trump being racist is sometimes sloppy, right? Like I don't think Donald Trump came to the presidency with a racist agenda. You know, I don't think he came there with a, with any agenda, actually. Um, it just becomes indistinguishable from an actual racist agenda. Ugh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so but the but the, the useful thing, though, is that people can make. So if I'm struggling and I, if I'm trying to be kind of accurate with the taxonomy of racism, then you can see how useful that is for people that claim that none of these people is racist, right? right. You can see you can see how useful it is and how, how you can collapse all these different things. But that's um, because, you know, people are viewing racism through a very narrow lens of the classic outward, you know, racist, not this cosmopolitan person who's fine hanging out with people of color if they share the same ideology. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And, and I think that there are the difficulty is that there are just way, way more cosmopolitan racists now than there were 50 years ago. Right. And they right? learn to use culture instead of race. Well, I think yeah. another thing is that, like, these things are legitimately, they are very hard to understand. Um, not And to defend all my fellow white males, <laughs> sexist, misogynistic, or whatever people. Um, so <laughs> I am a, so I live in a Western society, and I'm a white straight male. Um, I literally have never in my life been told or made to feel like I can't do something because of some intrinsic property of who I am. Uh, it, it's just never happened. There's never been where somebody's treated me like a way because I'm white or or felt made me feel like I shouldn't do something because I am male or that the way that I was acting wasn't acceptable because I'm straight. These things have never, ever happened to me. Um, the, the way that I often present this idea to my stream, because it's really hard for especially people in video games, right, to understand how this is, is that um, if, if I were to lock I, if I have a room, okay, and I want you to craft the funniest insults, the, the meanest way that you could be to somebody um, in this other room, and I were to tell you three things, their race, their gender, and their sexual orientation, that if you drew a card for a white straight man, you actually can't insult this person. There's nothing you can say. You, like. There's just not. You have to learn more about him to say something negative because none of these properties are by default a, a bad thing, you know? But if it's a woman, well, there's like 50 million things I can think of as an insult right off the bat because so many feminine traits are undesirable, you know, whether, or, or things that we call feminine traits, right? Like you're weak, you're, you know, bitchy, you know, a million different things. If you're a certain minority figure, you know, whether you're black or Indian or Hispanic, there's a million go-to insults if you're gay or trans, of course, or any, any of these more, um, but the farther away you are from the norm, the more easy it is to, to, to take a dig at you. Um, and 
all of these things are so hard to understand if you're a white male that like when we move away from if you look at sex or if you look at say racism right it's gotten to the point where like if there's not a literal black man hanging on a tree outside there's no racism mm. you know and, and people like Sargon will do this to me in arguments and this is why you know I'll continue to defend that I don't think they're really sexist but like I'll say to Sargon like hey you know there are a lot of social pressures and things that come together to kind of push women towards certain fields and somebody like Sargon Sar- well, I won't say something like Sargon actually responded to me and he'll say, you know, like, okay, show me the law that makes it illegal for yes. women to get a job and comp sci. Show me the law. Who's the man in front of the college building telling women? And it's like, it doesn't work that way, dude. This is so much more nuanced. And, you know, to some, to some extent, it's almost frustrating that Western society has made a great deal of progress in the terms of, in terms of how we treat LGBT people, in terms of how we treat women, and, and in terms of how we treat other types of minority figures. And it almost works to a detriment sometimes because when the big problems get fixed, you know, generally we're not killing gay people, at least not as much. We're not killing minorities for, you know, we're not segregating people. When, when these big problems get fixed, it creates this illusion of, well, look, all the racism and sexism is, is gone. You know, like we don't have to worry about it anymore. And these more nuanced topics are so hard for people to understand. They don't have to experience these things on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think when you don't experience these things, uh, you do develop certain blind spots. But people are many, many people are able to rise above that and have empathy for uh, situations that others, uh, you know, can be in. You know, like I'm a straight cis brown woman, but and I don't experience homophobia personally or transphobia, but I completely understand it. Maybe it's because I'm in a minority position, I understand the vulnerability and uh, the subtleties that go with that. But it's just, I mean, there's plenty of straight white men that understand racism and sexism. There there are some, but like, so here, here's something that, so um, I consider myself to be a, 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 a oh, okay, there's I, I would hope that I would be a, a relatively above average intelligent person. I think I, I do a pretty good job at understanding arguments. I think I, I try to do a pretty good job at empathizing with people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, up until maybe four or five years ago, I didn't really believe that sexist comments were that big of a deal because it wasn't something that I'd ever personally experienced. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too.